1: strange love today ray as we release on valentine's day it will be a strange love story really Fucking weird and beautiful too. It includes cruising in a 61 car, getting some kicks on Route 66. This love story is caveman primitive and as raw as the roots of rock and roll. There has always been goo goo muck at their sweaty, chaotic live shows. There are dames, booze, chains, and boots in this love story. So let's get fucked up as we wear our sunglasses after dark doing the zombie dance and ultra twist. And of course, the party is always cleaned up by the garbage man. I was bitten by the sound and caught the psycho billy fever of the cramps in high school and more so in college today we are going to try to tell the wildest rock and roll love story ever it's the story of poison ivy and lux interior and the rock and roll importance of the cramps get ready it's gonna get weird amen in
2: case you didn't know, this is the imbalance history of rock and roll. He's Marcus Goldman and man, that's one of your hottest intros to an episode ever, and it sets the stage for this week's episode released on Valentine's Day because it is. A psychobilly punk rock love story, man, no matter how you slice it. The story of Lux and Tyrion and Poison Ivy is about love.
1: It is. It's about love for each other and yep. their love of rock and roll and those 37? are
2: 37 years together as a couple and through most if not all of it they were a band other people came Mm -hmm. and went but the two of them the cramps Mm -hmm. continued and that's what we want to do, is tell their story, and it is a love story for Valentine's on the Imbalance History of Rock and Roll, sponsored by Boldfoot Socks, American Grown, American Sewn, and uh, available at boldfootsocks.com. Also sponsored by Crooked Eye Brewery in the heart of Hapro, in the heart of Delco, and now serving in the heart of Horsham, too. They're everywhere now. I think it's going to be one of those days when all of a sudden they're going to be on every local tap in our area.
1: I think so, too. I think they're going to really expand in the year ahead because it's going to be a big beer drinking year out and about as people get out and about and set up a new normal for our lives so i feel it i feel it too now ray This story is going to kind of jump around a little bit. And to start the love story, we have to go to Sacramento, California, 1972. Specifically, the Sacramento State campus area. This guy named Eric Perkheiser, who was known as Vip Vop at the time. He had other nicknames, too. Oh, yeah. Through the timeline, we'll try to go through these names as they are happening in live time and do our best to not confuse you. But remember, Vip Vop Eric our lux interior
2: you know look she acquired her nickname from a vision in a dream and that's about as psychobilly as it gets as far as i'm concerned and that's where his better half we always call our wives the better half because mm-hmm. they know so much more about
1: it. At true ray between the vision in the dream the batman villainous influence and in the song by the coasters poison ivy came alive
3: she comes on like a rose but everybody
0: It's <laughs> poison.
1: She was definitely a huge fundamental piece in this whole story and especially the music. But
2: my first question is, I want to know, I know they were in Sacramento. I know that they uh, were going to school there. But my first question is, how did they actually meet?
1: They actually met. When Poison Ivy was hitchhiking on campus, Vip Vop and his buddy were cruising down the road and they saw this beautiful woman in a halter top and short shorts and her shorts had a big hole in the butt with her red lace shining through. Eric and his buddy went, whoop, they picked her up, and the ride continued for over 40 years, according to Poison Ivy. And this is what she said about it. I was a teenage hitchhiker. She was about 19 years old, a freshman in college, and he gave me a ride. He's been giving me a ride ever since. And according to Vip Vop, he'd been on mescaline for over a month straight during the car ride. Only a month? Just at that point, (laughs) only a month. And he and Poison Ivy discussed a bunch of stuff on that car ride, including taking a class together, so they decided to take this class called Art and Shamanism. And according to Ivy, the relationship, which was preordained in her eyes, really took hold the first day of class. Ivy was already in the room, and as soon as Vip Vop walked in, she sent out those please sit next to me vibes. And so he walked over, sat down next to her, and they began talking. And then Ivy mentioned it was her birthday, so Vip Vop reached into his folder, gave her a drawing, of a woman in an abstract expressionist style, Ivy claimed that it had a lot of energy, and that she said that she had felt like she'd known viv-vop Eric Lux her entire life and beyond. At that point,
2: when that happens to you at any stage in life, it gives you the willies. You sit there, you go, "Whoa!"
1: I know. Now, she's pretty young
2: up. to have that feeling, but she was right. A lot mm-hmm. of times, you get that feeling at a young age, and you end up being wrong. It's not the
1: person you're. It's be more be. lust. But it is. It's more lust it, at, for but, many times.
2: But when lust turns to the fulfillment or the realization of what you thought it might be, which is what happened with them. I mean, they were together. They'd still be together. He was older, but mm-hmm. he had that uh, aortic dissection. Yeah. I talked to the medical expert in our house, Marisa, and she said, Ooh. She yeah. didn't even say anything else, just yeah. ooh.
1: Yeah, my mom survived an aortic dissection. So God bless her, man. She was lucky there was one that a, that a doctor at the table laws. with her and they got her to the hospital and there was something like they thought it was bad it was crazy and yeah so
2: that is Absolutely pure luck and happenstance that you survived by, because
1: Less than usually five. you
2: hear about it. Somebody goes, "Oh," and then they go down, and then they never open their yeah. eyes again.
1: And it's like ten minutes. You get ten minutes at that point, or something like that. Okay. You usually bleed out. But
2: the thing is, they were together on the road, all over this crazy marble that we live on. Right? They mm-hmm. worked together all through their years. All different people would come, and guys would play drums, and people would play bass, and other people. and then At one point, they had two guitars, all that stuff, right? But they were together as teammates Mm -hmm. as crampy twins all that time until he passed and now she lives the quiet life i guess you'd say for a punk rock queen Mm -hmm. out in glendale california and it's one of those things you know i get like a hmm about it you know the ending of it, the love story could have ended a little bit more happily. Well, yeah. But
1: shit happens. Absolutely. And uh,
2: that's why we're talking about it here on Valentine's, because it's really a punk rock love story. Mm-hmm. The story of the cramp.
1: Absolutely. But that day in class, this is the stuff that's like the crazy stuff in this story. Like, because it was 72 and there was a art and shamanism class that they were taking, the professor had the class form a circle. They held hands. Vip Vop had his professor on one side he had poison ivy on the other side the professor moved their energy in the connections clockwise and counterclockwise and vip Vop said that he felt a thousand times the energy from her that he did on the teacher's side and he said he knew at that point there was really 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 something there I believe that kind of
2: energy is both transferable, feelable, recognizable, and all that. And in a situation like this where there's a cosmic twist to it, like this couple, and you're the guy who's the piece of connective tissue in the Mm -hmm. connection, you got to watch you don't get burned, you know, Mm -hmm. because it's that kind of a thing. And that's what they had.
1: Now that we've established their meeting, who are? are Poison Ivy and Lux Interior. Poison Ivy, born Christy Marlana Wallace February 20th, 1953 in the Valley. But she was raised in Sacramento, California. Her parents were house flippers. She moved like nine times between kindergarten and high school. Wow, change in school? House oh, flippers hard. in the 50s. That's wild, wow. dude. That's like during the boom when everything was going up and like post-World War II America was Pretty crazy and so, but
2: California was developing, so there was a lot of old houses being made new. I could see where they'd have something to do
1: there, but it is really early on that trend. Interesting. But
2: maybe they were instilling that being early on a trend in their daughter.
1: And because she was uh always moving, she was that awkward, redheaded, skinny kid that people picked on, so she ended up taking on that bad girl motif and started smoking. Her older brother taught her how to play guitar, turned her on to the light. Of Link Ray and the Purple People Eaters and stuff like that. The Martian Hop by the Randells. We have
0: just discovered an important note from Spain.
1: It just kind of uh, grew from there. And as she grew older, she became more into, like, the horror and the rockabilly and that rawness. And Wait a minute. Did you say horror or horror? Horror. Horror. Because Colorado I'm from out west, through. and we say horror <laughs> there. Right. Horror. The horror. But so she was into all of that stuff, and yeah. it helped develop her sound and her style. Plus, again, you have older brothers and sisters that, you know, turn you on to music. It makes a big impact in your world as well. And her mom sang Elvis to her all the time as a child too and that makes a difference I don't think people realize how much of a difference that type of stuff makes
2: it really does and other influences too. that the exposure to people like link ray and it infuses itself into their music when you look at what they did musically in the cramps and we'll talk about this when we start talking about the the songs and stuff like that they drew a lot of direct influence from artists that were huge in that time and at the same time they also developed a lot of their material based off off some of those touchstone songs that really, really resonated
1: Yes, and what they did is they took a lot of those obscure rockabilly songs That nobody knew and repurposed them And we'll talk about that as well when we go into it And how they found out about a lot of these bands Because a lot of these records were only found in like junk stores And like weird places because there weren't reissues And they did single pressings But from there, she had seen a lot of concerts as a kid The Yardbirds, The Kinks, The Stones, and Hendrix, and then she had this life-changing moment, Bo Diddley opening for the Quicksilver Messenger Service. I walked 47 miles of barbed wire, I use a cobra snake for a necktie, I got a brand new house on the roadside, made from rattlesnake hide, I got a brand new chimney made on top, made out of a human skull, now come on, take a little walk with me, Arlene, and tell me who do you love, who
3: do you love?
1: Just 22 and I don't mind mind that Who do you love? Who
3: do you love? Who do you love?
1: She saw his second guitarists that were usually called the Duchess. It was either Peggy Jones, Norma Jean Wofford, Gloria Jolive, Cornelia Cookie Redman, or Debbie Hastings. And that was one of those things that turned her on to the guitar because Bo Diddley had these women that were just killer on guitar with him. And then she attended Sacramento State. He wasn't and- attending there, was he? Yeah, he was. He actually joined. Okay, so it
2: wasn't just like a chance uh, hitchhiker thing. He was in the area.
1: He didn't want to go to Vietnam, so he ended up at Cal State Sacramento.
2: It was a real concern if you were that age Mm -hmm. anywhere, Mm -hmm. and whatever way you could avoid military service Mm -hmm. or the draft, that was the big thing. The draft, which a lot of people don't understand today, was in Mm -hmm. in effect even during peacetime (laughs) until the mid-70s. So they meet there at college. Is that a more famous college because they went to school there?
1: It's not a more famous college because they went to school there. At that time it was one of those crazy party schools. And at that time when they met in 72 they were both into like T-Rex and glam and stuff like that as well as the rockabilly and things like that and just kind of grooving.
2: How did he end up deciding to go to Sacto State though? That's kind of funny (laughs) The a kid from Ohio, which is where he grew up,
1: uh, Akron would end up there. He wanted to get the fuck out of Ohio because... Because my city was gone? Akron, basically. But here's this. Akron, which at the time that he was a kid there, was one of those manly towns because of all the factory workers. So there was a huge problem. It was a Rust Belt town. Yeah, it was abuse and alcoholism were huge in that town. And in fact, AA started in Akron, Ohio. So it just tells you about the atmosphere. Plus, they had religion and Eric couldn't handle any of that stuff and wanted to get away from it and so I think he just said hey California's pretty wild and as, as far away from
2: Ohio as he could get and yeah sure
1: Lux Interior or Vip at the time spent a lot of his childhood listening to a crazy rock and roll DJ in Cleveland that they could get in Akron his name was Pete Mad Daddy Myers he was on the station called WHKK which is a legendary Cleveland station from the fifties and sixties, he is the Cleveland DJ who coined the term rock and roll. He mixed rock and roll, R and B, and horror movies and like that schlocky shtick stuff. And the kids went wild for it. He was adding rockabilly. He was doing all these wild things, you know, throwing Link Ray's Rumble into the mix of music and just blowing these kids' minds. Two, one.
0: <laughs> yeah, my Daddy Giggle in the land of the grand. Lots of stuff jumping here on hand. Join me where the Wolfbane flowers. Bop and hop for two and a half hours. Mellow jell o that really swings.
2: Play with me on Vampire's Wings. <laughs> you know, they should have never taken Link Ray out of the mix. He's one of the main influences for a lot of what we're talking about today and with a lot of the psychobilly and with, you know, rockabilly too. And his music, his riff, his feel is at the essence of a lot of what we're talking about today, but also all the other things that happened in the subgenre of rock and roll,
1: Cramps were part of. Absolutely. And I do want to talk about Link Ray at some point because I'm curious as to why he got taken out of the mix. Because if you look at all of this, it makes absolutely You're getting no into my sense. list of
2: questions, buddy, because... One of my main questions I want to answer or try to answer today is why Link Ray Slinky isn't a classic of that era. I was listening to that, a lot of his other songs this week while we were getting ready, because I kept hearing that feel that is in their music, in the Cramps music, and then even in the music of the artists that they were incorporating, uh, like Jack Scott's The Way I Walk is a perfect example of what I'm talking about. And I kept thinking, why isn't Link Ray more a part of this? And I just realized that he didn't really get the credit then or now as much as he certainly deserves for the influence that he played. And these guys gave him his just due.
1: No, without a doubt, Ivy calls him her favorite guitarist of all time and does that many times. I believe it. So this rock and roll fever hit him hard. He ended up seeing this band called the Ramblers perform live, and that was when he decided he wanted to be a rock and roller. Another wild part of this story, because the Mad Daddy left Cleveland and went to New York, this new guy, Ernie Anderson, who used the phrase, stay sick, became a part of Lux Interior's influence because he did this crazy horror costume stuff on TV. He ended ah. up leaving and going to L.A., becoming the voice of Monday Night Football, the narrator for The Love Boat, and Star Trek Next Generation. This guy... Was a huge influence on Lux Interior's mind and his rebellious antics are what kind of pushed Lux into a mischief-making teen years, you could say.
2: What I want to know is, did they move from Akron to New York because Mad Dog moved, or was that a different
1: time? That was in the 50s when Mad Dog moved. And then in the 60s, he had his whole, you know, collecting records and listening to all the crazy rockabilly and then avoiding Vietnam and moving to California and then meeting Ivy and then here they are now in love and then they get into a little bit of legal trouble and have to leave California
2: so I guess you just added a question to my list then. Okay. What was the trouble bubble?
1: I'm not really sure. We're going to have to get the research department on that one and see if we can find out because they didn't say what legal trouble was in the book. All they said is a little bit of hmm. legal trouble.
2: That's and a very wide hole to leave in a book. But absolutely. That's cool. And listen, so they found their reason and they leave California. And they moved uh, back to Akron, where Eric was from. Mm -hmm. And and that's kind of where the area where the dead boys were from. And there was some punk rock ethos going on Mm -hmm. in the Cleveland scene at that time. Despite its history of being all about top 40 DJs, there was a lot of dirty dogs on the radio in Cleveland and Akron in those days that were getting ready to turn shit up
1: and make it weird. And they were the perfect couple for the job. While all these bands were growing their chops, the Cramps, Poison Ivy and Lux were collecting records. They were doing things like finding these obscure artists and then looking at these bands that they're seeing, the Dead Boys, Para Ubu, the Electric Eels, and right. going, how can we add the rockabilly thing to this and make it good? Because they're good, but they don't have rockabilly. So they're not that good you need rockability and this is what these two live by so this is their thing and during this time but Lux uh found this uh rockabilly star Charlie Feathers who most likely was the cat who invented that rockabilly hiccup was one of the first to ever record it
3: well, the sun is gone down and you're
1: That was a style that Lux was really working on to incorporate to his Iggy influenced baritone. Which...
2: Ah, Iggy influence. Let's talk about that yeah. because just uh, uh, the way he walks when he sings The Way I Walk definitely has a lot of that Iggy twisting mm-hmm. in it the way he feels the music comes out that
1: way oh no doubt oh no doubt about it and you feel the Iggy influence in some of the things that he does and if you look at some of his old videos and the way he moves he does a little bit of the Iggy movement mixed in with his own style of moving around crazily across the stage but they're listening to all these bands at this time that are influencing them like we did this episode on doo so they're listening to right? this weird Rebel doo bands like Four Plaid Throats, Jackie and the Starlights. <laughs> The medallions, the versions, the the five dollars. I don't know any of these bands but I went on YouTube and Harvey, I listened to some Harvey. of them. Seriously, it was crazy. <laughs> I listened to them and it was it was a whole different style of like doo-wop. It was almost like punk rocky doo-wop in a way because well, it was you so you you have your
2: whole theory about the meth-fueled Ramones uh or yeah. doo-wop, you know? I'm I'm thinking it might be in that vein, buddy. Of course, listen to like
1: Link Ray and Dwayne Eddy and stuff like that as well, but they found a lot of love in that stuff. The Flamingos were another Ooh. big early in They went down to, like, Sun City and bought a whole ton of 45s from the studios that you couldn't get. Because Rockabilly right. didn't reissue and do those re-recordings that Soul and Pop did over no, and over. we made it already.
2: We made that yeah. already. They were, were like, like, we released 8,000. Let me just point and- something out to you. Let me point something out to you, pal. Because you're saying something that's really underlined by their own discography. Where they're drawing songs from. Yeah, they have their own songs, like Garbage Man and Human Fly and things like that. They're all really cool. Mm-hmm. But like The Way I Walk from Jack Scott, and a lot of this is from the Off the Bone collection. That mm-hmm. song is the epitome of where they come from. If you're looking mm-hmm. for where the cramps came from and, and that sound they have. The
3: way I walk is just the way I walk. The way I talk is just
0: the way I talk. The way I smile is just the way I smile. Touch me, baby, and I'll go hog wild. The way I love is just the way I love. Come on and be my little turtle dove. Touch me, baby. I feel so good. I feel as though I wanna then I don't know if I should. Yeah. A there's a sam really...
2: phillips song in there they did surf and bird everybody knows the bird it's a murder bird, bird right they yeah. did these songs these are essential to the lineage that leads to the cramps yeah. as weird and twisted looking as they are compared to the guys who made these records mm-hmm. this
1: is the lineage am i wrong no you're a hundred percent correct so... you give me fever Oh, dude, Fever is such a great tune, the way they do it. And a lot of times with these songs, and we'll talk about it more when they get into it, they take these old classics and bend them to make them their own by changing the lyrics and tweaking it.
0: never know how much I love you, never know how much I care when you put your arms around me. I get a feeling that's a so hard to bear You give me fever
3: When you kiss me, fever
2: When you hold me tight That and the sound. Yes. They they used the sounds that are available to them when they were recording in the 70s and the 80s that Mm -hmm. weren't available to the guys like Link Ray in the 50s. They Mm -hmm. had that amp and maybe a a little whammy bar and that guitar. They had a whole range of production things that they could do when they were doing these records Mm -hmm. that made it their own, yet still a direct line back Mm -hmm. to the founders of all this. Mm -hmm. And there's just one guy. Did you come across Hassel Adkins?
1: I did did. I I just came across him. All right, let's talk about him in a little bit. So, through all of this, another couple of weird moments happen. Lux and Ivy are reading this magazine called Rock Sound Magazine in early 75 and they read about this place called CBGB's in New York City and a light goes on and they're like, we have to pilgrimage there. This is the place we need to go. But then, before they decided to make that pilgrimage, Lux and Ivy went to go see a 300-pound Mark Bolin past his prime, and that was a changing moment for them because they were huge Bolin fans, and Lux realized during the car ride home that he could sing those songs better than Bolin at that time, and that's when he was like, we gotta go to New York City. I've been wondering about the motivation
2: to go new york and now you know cbgbs and meeting mark bolin are the propellants that take us to new york and the story of the cramps here on our valentine's love story special marcus
1: what do you say we refresh with a pint from crooked eye and a fresh pair of boldfoot dancing socks as it's gonna get sweaty messy dirty and extra sexy when we come back
2: on the imbalanced history of rock and roll
1: and we're welcoming a new sponsor
2: to the podcast this week, Marcus, Boldfoot Socks, boldfoot.com.
1: Thanks to Josh Law for joining up and being part of the support for what we do. Absolutely. 100% American made, grown here, sown here. And the fact that he is a listener of the podcast yes. and is why he reached out to us. Is huge. So we thank Josh for uh, reaching out initially to have this conversation about Boldfoot Socks being a sponsor.
2: And we want to thank Josh for his service because he's a veteran. Like so many members of his family who own the company, Boldfoot Socks,
1: and 5% of all their profits go to veterans in need. So he's giving back to his own community. These socks are pretty solid. They offer three months of sock insurance, which means any issues in the first three months, you get a full refund. A full refund.
2: So order those
1: socks at boldfoot.com. And when you go there, save
2: 15% if you're a listener of the Imbalanced History Podcast by entering the promo code HISTORY15,
1: HISTORY, and the number 1-5. Again, boldfoot.com. Check out all their designs. And remember, 5% of all profits go to veterans in need.
2: Family and veteran-owned. Boldfoot socks at boldfoot.com. A new year at Crooked
1: Eye and a new slate of freshly brewed ales. And your favorites, right? Of course, the favorites always. I'm excited to try some of these new beers in 2022 as well because it's a new year. Try some new beer. See what's new in 2022. <laughs> <laughs> At
2: York and Montgomery in the heart of Hatboro, always a good time to be had there. The live music, the events, the blues jam on Wednesday nights. And, of course, you not only can have the brews that are made right there on the premises by Jeffrey But they've got Pennsylvania craft spirits and wine and just a good time to be had anytime you slide by Crooked Eye in the heart of Montgomery County and in the heart of Delco near
1: you. That's right. Check out Jamie's House of Music.
2: And they've announced a third place to get your Crooked Eye at Speed Raceway in Horsham, Pennsylvania. Always something happening, man. Always something going on behind the eye at Crooked Eye.
3: And use the code Pantheon50 to get 50% off. That's Factormeals.com slash Pantheon50 and use the code Pantheon50 to get 50% off.
2: Happy Valentine's to all the lovers. Releasing on Valentine's Day 22, it's the Cramps, Lux Interior, Poison Ivy, a psychobilly love story, and your narrator, you're totally down and into this thing. Half of this podcast team (laughs) is the one and only Marcus. You were born to do this in the darkest (laughs)
1: winter. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) This
2: episode, come on, man. Look, when we were doing our Halloween break, storm right for and we ended up doing the cramps versus typo which is kind of a silly notion but we've had fun with it anyway absolutely the next day i go on there you must have seen valentine's day and you knew you wanted to do the love i knew it of uh lux interior uh that's eric and poison ivy his better half christy right and i didn't really get it at first to be honest with you i like the cramps some of their songs are really cool i like where they came from which we talked about in the first half and i kind of had a couple of the questions i have figure themselves out along the way but there's still one that I think we're going to get to the answer on what I really want to know is given their proximity to and involvement in the New York City punk scene and CBG's influence in getting them to move to New York why aren't they more closely generally identified with CBGB's is it because they were also huge at maxes and mud club or is there another reason a
1: couple of reasons so Hilly was very uh, dismissive of them at first he did not like them and want to give them a shot, which is rare because usually he'll give everybody a shot and it took them some time. But when they moved in September of 75, they had nothing. They ended up in an apartment on the Upper East Side on 73rd, a half an hour subway ride from CBGB's. They had to make sure everything was easy for them to get to CBGB's where they lived. <laughs> they were poor, they were starving, and they ended up, according to uh, Dick Porter in the book Journey the center of the cramps they shared strength in their rock and roll mission and their unwavering faith in each other ensured there was absolutely no question of them abandoning their chosen path we never lost faith we didn't doubt said poison ivy that's their love story right there wow
2: really is.
1: And so right away they became regulars at CBGB's. They loved the punk rock energy of the Ramones and the other bands, but they wanted to do it with a rockabilly flair and they had to keep figuring it out, so they kept practicing and practicing and they would see bands like Suicide on stage at CBGB's who had a more aggressive crowd approach, like they were more aggressive with the crowd and he kind of in a way that Iggy was at times and Jim Morrison but maybe a little more punk rock so and that right. influenced how he was starting to process stuff and it seemed like before they exploded they were absorbing and absorbing and absorbing and absorbing and then they just let it all mm-hmm. the fuck out so, they started practicing as a band. Miriam Lynna came out with them from Ohio. Oh, I didn't know that. They asked their friend Miriam Lynna, who was from Ohio, to move to New York City with them. And she had never played drums before, but they knew because of her attitude, they wanted her uh-huh. to play drums. Is
2: this the beginning of their drummer problem? Because that yes, was one of my big questions. It is, is why, the beginning of their drummer why, problem. Why, why, why did they seem to have a drummer problem?
1: Because. And That's this, not the answer. Because. <laughs> That is the answer, but it's a long, convoluted answer that we have to right. get to. We but, have time on the podcast. So oh, we have breath. time to get to it, I promise. So they were watching, and they were practicing, and eventually Miriam Lina wasn't feeling it, and she ended up leaving the band, and, you know, what do you do? You find a new drummer, and... Yeah, you
2: have to if you're going to play live, right?
1: And that's when they brought in Pam Balam, and... Wasn't that nickname, Pam Balam? Like Her Pam name, Balom. yeah. And Pam pambalam Pam Balam, And she was Brian Gregory, their guitarist's sister. And, oh, yeah,
2: I read that, too. And I, I was she,
1: finding out all this stuff. And he was with them for quite a while, too. He was with them till 1980. And then his story gets really weird, too. And after the first record into the second record, when they change guitarists, is when his story gets bizarre. He wants to become Brian Jones and thinks he is How Brian do they Jones.
2: Get a, I don't know that that's the best goal to have in life when you consider i mean creatively sure but i really want to know they're in the middle of all this initially they get the cold shoulder but they end up playing cbgb it's their goldenrod. they end up playing the other clubs too but why aren't they more closely associated i guess you'd say with the bands like the ramones and patty smith and talking heads. And I have a theory on this. So Go just ahead. give me a second here. I've been listening all your love for these guys, and I think I found the answer when I was doing my research, and the answer lies in the fact that none of their initial releases charted in the United States. They had a number of records and compilations, and there's an argument that the IRS tried to take advantage of the guys with one of those re-releases and people wouldn't buy it. I mean, all that crazy stuff. You'd think people would be generally supportive of somebody that's this groundbreaking. You don't see it, you see it in in the UK as an indie off the beginning. You see it in the UK chart uh, number 1 mm-hmm. on the indie chart with songs the lord taught us, right? Mm-hmm. So we see that as the first recorded release even though they'd been around for 4 5 6 years from Akron to New York and trying to work into this and we're going to get to alex chilton in a moment absolutely and i both are fascinated by him as a character absolutely then they go to psychedelic jungle again nothing and they make noise on the date with elvis album but not in the u.s uk and australia oddly and stay sick number 62 in the uk and that's about all with the charts and then you look down and they start including u.s charts because there becomes some action and it's as they have moved along uh u.s fans are are plugging into them, but they never ever get traction in the United States on the charts. And I'm not saying that you I... have to to be a band that matters, I'm not saying that you have to to be an important band. I'm saying I found the answer to why they aren't included in the conversation with the Ramones and Talking Heads and others that were associated with CBGB.
1: And I, I'm sorry to say
2: that that was the answer that I found.
1: Part of it was that nobody knew how To categorize them they were a simple Straight up rock and roll band And think about all our Years in radio and all these bands That have been miscategorized Sade is an example she was alternative And she's not alternative at all But nobody knew where to put her Nobody knew where to place the cramps Nobody knew What to make of the cramps either They also didn't take the cramps Seriously and this was one of their biggest Fights in the early days is every Everybody thought they were a parody band, and they're like, What the fuck are you talking about? We live this life every fucking day. We don't take life seriously. The cramps were like, Oh, political bands, man. They're a joke. They're all fake. Those guys have a fake message, and then they end up doing the opposite 10 years later. That was totally Lux's attitude. He was like, We're just about having fun. We're about the raw sexual jungle dance element of rock and roll, and that's it. Fuck the rest. And that's what they you did. You
2: hit it, man. You hit it.
1: And that's what They did but this journey was a Gnarly journey for them their First gig was opening for The Dead Boys on a Monday night At CBGB's November 1st 1976 and they Fucked up so bad they put on New guitar strings right before Their first show and played their Entire set out of tune after the First song when you put on new guitar Strings they go out of tune right Away so you have to play them and muscle them And feel them for a while and They ended up putting on fresh guitar strings Playing a bad set, so Hilly was pissed. Everybody was pissed, and he was like, you ain't playing here anymore. So they had to go across the street to Max's Kansas City, and that's where they ended up getting a residence and doing a whole bunch of nights. Their first night at Max's Kansas City was November 21st. They opened up for Suicide and Fuse, and it was two different styles of punk influenced by doo and rock and roll. And then they started opening for Blondie, Mink DeVille, Jane County was a huge fan when she was Wayne County and loved Ivy's twangy guitar basically said that Ivy's guitar was really solid picking between the chords and she was just really strong as a guitar player and that really moved their sound forward
2: you know they truly are unpigeonholable okay <laughs> so i want to know what the
1: fuck are they bro they're rock and roll and
2: wait a minute now first things first if you get to it what harvey holiday said when he was here a few weeks ago right he said yep. about all the labels mm-hmm. that were applied by record collectors and mm-hmm. djs so they had a way to fit everybody into little boxes mm-hmm. and stuff and that's had me thinking about what we do every day when we're talking about music on the radio when we work on local radio right i'm having a serious uh self-examination over this whole thing because that's what people try to do they try to put you in a pigeonhole they were rock and roll which is what harv was saying at all all was, it wasn't just doo-wop no. or this, or, you know, it was all just rock and roll, and maybe that's why, at the end of the day, the argument that we have sometimes with people about the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, that it all boils down to, yeah, it's all rock and roll, dude. It's all rock and roll.
1: It is. I mean, think about the Black Keys and Jack White being as straight rock and roll as they are, and in the late 90s, early 2000s, they were only played right. on alternative stations at first, and they're as straight rock if, and roll as it gets, yeah. and it took Oh, them. speaking
2: of alternative stations in the 90s, one of the guys of alternative radio crosses paths with Lux and Poison Ivy. How did they end up meeting Alex Chilton and working with him on a few songs?
1: Well, in 77, they did some recording with Richard Robinson. You might know him because he owned a magazine called Rock Scene Magazine, and he would pay for some bands to record. This was in the 70s. His wife is Lisa Robinson, journalist that we've talked about, who did all the Stones and and Zeppelin and all that. And that recording was a massive (laughs) failure, but it got them a gig. At this club called the Village Gate Where Miles, Coltrane, Aretha, Jimmy played And guess who was on that bill that night Doing a solo show Alex Chilton uh-huh.
3: Give me a ticket for an aeroplane Ain't got time to take a fast train Lonely days are gone I'm going home Much money i gotta spend. got a spare got to to get back to my baby am home my baby me
0: a
1: little Alex Chilton's band Big Star was much like the Velvet Underground of the 70s they sold like 20,000 records and almost everybody who bought one of those Alex Chilton Big Star records formed a band in the 70s Yes sir. that's exactly right
0: Won't you let me?
2: It's the Amalyn's History of Rock and Roll. We are knee-deep in the goop. Isn't that what they call it? Goop.
1: It is. (laughs) It is the goop. It is the
2: cramps. They emit it in large quantities. Mm -hmm. And I've been spending a lot of time with their music, Marcus. And to your credit, you've been a continued positive influence in that direction. Because as we've moved towards this episode, I've told you flat out, man, I'm like, I don't know how much I know about these guys. And the things that I'm asking you about are my honest questions, because... You know, we're looking at Mm -hmm. connections here. And you mentioned Miles Copeland, who was connected to our friend Annie Haslam. And they did a record for IRS and that uh, collection that the fans were screaming about the fans, right? Their fans are the most loyal sons of bitches on the
1: planet without a doubt
2: they will not ever vary and i see it because it's in my house Mm -hmm. (laughs) when it comes to you you know you're You're one of those fans and i see it and what i say is the people who've gotten involved with them realize there was something special and i think you hit it on the head earlier when you said they didn't really know what to do
1: with it Nobody did know what to do with it So this is where Nick Knox comes in He had been the drummer in the Cleveland Proto-Punk Band The Electric Eels He was making regular trips to New York City Because he saw that same thing in the scene That Lux and uh, Ivy And he loved the cramps And he wanted to join them Brian Gregory, the guitarist, didn't like Nick Knox at first I think there was some ego issues between the two of them And so the band would not commit to giving Nick Knox an audition While they were looking for a new drummer and Nick got pissed off. He's like, "Fuck this! I want an audition." So he followed him to CBGB's one day and said, "God damn it, I want an audition." And Luck said, "Okay." <laughs> and then Luck said this in the book: "I'm glad I said okay because Nick said he was going to punch me in the nose if I said no." And the chemistry you know, worked immediately. I had a
2: question for you that was going to come up like next, which is why they seem to have a drummer problem. But you seem to have answered it before <laughs> I ever
1: really got to it. But. <laughs> oh my. Nick Knox stayed with them for a long time. Their next problem became Brian Gregory, which he had some ego issues with Nick Knox, but they had really great chemistry playing together, so they ended up working, and then they ended up going to Memphis and recording some songs with Alex Chilton in October of 77, And which at that time, they played to their biggest crowd ever of over 1, a 1,000 people. The crowd hated them at first, but by uh, about four or five songs in, they won the crowd over because they were crazy. And then they ended up doing a background record for a guy named Jim Dickinson at Sam Phillips Studio. He did a cover of a rockabilly song.
2: When the Rolling Stones rolled into Muscle Shoals in the middle of the night to record some songs off the radar and off the union radar and all that, they were trying to squirrel away songs. Jim Dickinson is a piano player on those songs. I think Wild Horses is one of them. And he was a Shoals guy. And he's crossing swords, so to speak, with the
1: fucking cramps, dude. The fact that the cramps played background on his recording of Sonny Burgess's redheaded woman is crazy, too. Ready? That's what they did. And then. Yeah, yeah, he
2: was good at that.
1: At these ardent sessions with Alex Chilton, they did a cover of Ricky Nelson's Lonesome Town. A place
2: where
1: go to
3: cry the trouble.
1: Rock and Bones, Twist and Shout, and a reworking of Please Give Me Something by Big Alan and the Backbeats. And then they recorded two new songs Mad Daddy and Human Fly.
3: When I'm a human fly I, I spend 96 I, as I got a go brain, that's driving me insane, and I don't like the ride, so push the master aside, and baby, I won't care, cause baby, I don't scare, cause I'm a reborn maggot, using Jim warfare, rockin' right?
2: One of the things, and it's been a big learning experience for me, is that Ricky Nelson played such a large role of influence on the cramps. And when I saw that, I went, okay. And I tried to like, you know how like your brain tries to like work it out as an equation Mm -hmm. and I can see where with what they do he is that softer edge, that kind of a, you know, more of a pre-punk laid back thing you know, that's in there.
0: There's a place where lovers
1: go to cry their troubles away and they
0: call it Lonesome town
2: Where the broken heart stays to see that as part of the influence and not just Link Ray and not just Eddie Cochran, you know. Yeah. Man, I'm I'll, learning it all the time. You and me, me we talk about I'm it learning off, to... off the uh, podcast air all the time, you know.
1: Did you have any idea that Ricky Nelson did Rockabilly in his early days? I had no yes. idea. That I did not know. I thought he was just a heartthrob teen love. I didn't know about his Rockabilly things, so I was like blown away by that. And then Luck said that he was the clean-cut Rockabilly kid in those days because everybody else was a right. drunken hillbilly, and so he <laughs> kind of mainstreamed all that rockabilly. That's a little harsh. I know, but the fact is that Rick
2: was real at it. Look, he was on TV since he was a little kid. Mm-hmm. He was one of America's favorite young sons, right? Mm-hmm. Turns out he's an incredible talent. He really brought a lot to the table musically, not just a pretty face off of television. Mm-hmm. He's incredible talent, and we have to do an episode about Rick Nelson sometime.
1: Also, there's a little bit of a teeny Philly tie right before they moved to LA. So in November 77, they were touring a lot over the Northeast, and Lux tore his knee cartilage at the Hot Club in Philadelphia, and they had to take some time off, and they ended up working on some new songs at that time. But at the end of the year, they released a cover of Surfing Bird and The Way I Walk as a B-side, and nobody could categorize those covers, so nobody knew where to play it.
0: Oh, well, everybody's heard everybody's heard about, about the, bird. About the bird.
2: trying to figure out why they had all this recording action going on and didn't release an album until 1980,
1: the songs the Lord taught us, right? Because nobody would pay for a full label, and they didn't have money, and they had to finance their recordings their own selves on their own vengeance label. And at I that time, Ivy took on a job as a dominatrix to help make money baby and so in 78 the cramps loaded up their van drove to california and ended up opening for the runaways at the whiskey it was okay because they were pretentious in southern california and they weren't as hip to the punk scene as hardcore as new york was yet it was a little more controlled and so they kind of were like this isn't our thing let's head up north so they drove up to san francisco played a few clubs there and then on june 16th of 78 they took weird to a whole new level they played a show at the napa valley mental institution which is on video yes it was absolutely crazy. Men and women were humping each other on the dance floor. They were doing <laughs> things that you'd expect them to do in an institution, like licking it, the walls. Doesn't
2: happen on this podcast. I know <laughs>
1: that. <laughs> yeah. anyway. Yeah. People were walking up to them, talking to them during their set while they were playing. During the song Love Me, a bunch of residents circled Lux and gave him a group hug. During the song What's Behind the Mask, a woman jumped on Lux's back the entire song and was screaming into the mic randomly, and they were going with it. There were middle-aged women with handbags doing the pogo, and... People were yelling Ward T at the cramps during the show. Ward T is the place where all the lifers are, and the people that they were playing for thought they were lifers and Ward T playing for them. But this is the stuff that really helped them blow up, and this is the stuff that helped define who the cramps were, and it shows the rest of the world who they are. So after all of that— I understand, like G. Allen eating shit on stage. I get it. Yeah, but nothing at that level of crazy (laughs) and psychotic. This is just sexy fun. So they ended up heading to Cleveland on their way back and playing an Independence Day party with per Ubu and the Pagans overlooking Lake Erie. And is this
2: coming back from L.A.? Are they yeah, this is coming
1: back from L.A. And then they started playing in Toronto and a few other places. In right. 1978, they released their single, The Human Fly, and started making a little bit of noise. And then in February of 79, the Cramps entered Hothouse Studios in Midtown with Chris Spedding to record five songs, which were Twist and Shout, I Was... A teenage werewolf, Rockin' Bones, and Mad Daddy, and they would all appear on a bootleg called Tales from the Cramps.
2: I got a question for you. I looked at the long list of bootlegs that are out of the cramps, uh, studio stuff, the live stuff. And I guess I want to know if you own any of them. There's
1: dozens. I do not have any of them. I had a couple of them, and they got lost moving out here. And I'm so sad about it. I lost a crate oh, of records, and I don't know where they are.
2: Not that crate.
1: Yes, that crate. I know that, that feeling crate. of fear. That crate. Oh, man. Like, they were making noise. The Clash loved them, and The Clash reached out for the Cramps to open up for them at that famous Palladium show on East 14th Street. Bo Diddley was on that bill, too. Can you imagine that? And then they went to England to open up for the police as for all of their Miles Copeland stuff and getting onto illegal and IRS records. Right. And so then they ended up going to Ohio and recording a bunch of stuff with Alex Chilton for IRS. And we end up with the album. Weirdly, they only
2: had one original album for IRS. All the other ones were on
1: their little labels, right? Yes but they were all like Miles Copeland labels. They were subsidiaries Uh, of Illegal and some of those other labels because he was a a smart man, Miles Copeland is. He had like seven or eight labels under him and very interesting and quirky. I mean, their dad was a CIA operative in the Middle East. I know. That's crazy. Yes. Oh, yeah. We're not supposed (laughs) to tell anybody. After touring England with the police, they Uh, ended up recording their debut album at Sun Studios in Memphis. And Alex Chilton kept passing out because he was so wasted. The band kept waking him up. And it was a crazy experience. But that's why we have the songs the Lord taught us.
2: Teenage Werewolf is one of those songs that I wanted to talk to you about because I know the influence is there. I've already mentioned Jack Scott, but the riff from The Way I Walk and the riff from Teenage Werewolf by The Cramps, you could find places and overlay them, I'm sure, like a mash where they would be like right on top of each other. It's so direct and you realize that if you loved that feel or you loved that feel and discovered it later, what I would say is 1959 guitar. It's really a huge stamp on everything that she does with the guitar. And she... Runs the banner up the pole every time she did it, every show, every session to create her own stamp on that kind of style of guitar. Amazing.
1: I'm glad you keep mentioning Link Ray because his part of the story is so important. And if you listen to Sunglasses After Dark. Throws out an interpretation of the song "Ace of Spades" by Link Ray in there. Go back and listen to Link Ray's "Ace of Spades," and then go listen to "Sunglasses After Dark," and you will hear how she pulled that influence. It's pretty damn incredible.
2: into this shit man you got me into this and i don't know if i'm getting out because it's like a swamp the whole thing is like a giant sci-fi psychobilly swamp of rock and roll and i am so deep into this but i got one more question the song one piece at a time by our lord johnny cash is noted as a song that has a whole lot to do with inspiring them to be the cramps so i just wonder why they never recorded that song that influenced them so much
1: I'm going to guess that they tried, but they couldn't give it the rockabilly twang that they wanted to, and they couldn't interpret it the way that they felt they should interpret it. And my guess is when they didn't cover bands that they maybe could have covered, it was because they tried and weren't able to reproduce it. But they also made a vow not to cover Chuck Berry. They love Chuck Berry, but everybody else did, so they didn't want to cover him. And that was the only reason. why would
2: you do that if you love him? But I get it. Hey, I found out something that I didn't know I knew. From 2002, in regards to the cramps. Lux was the voice of a character on SpongeBob SquarePants. He was the lead singer of the bird rock band called the Bird Brains. And I remember the Bird Brains, and I remember me and the kids just thought it was fucking hysterical. Come with
0: me to the land I love. It's my.
2: Always free Down,
3: down,
0: down To the bottom of the sea Where our salty friend Spongebob waits for you
2: And this is the other part that blew my mind. Tom Kenny is the voice of SpongeBob. When Lux died, Tom went to the funeral. So SpongeBob was Lux Interior's funeral. Think about that. Think of the imagery. And that's the kind of thing we're talking about. I just blew your mind a little bit, didn't
1: I? I remember reading about that, and they jumped out. And I can't remember that episode of SpongeBob. I have to go back and look for it. But at that time, which we will get to, he had come out of hiatus after being in the dark for like eight. 18 months, and nobody was sure what was going on with the cramps. So going back to their first album, which they released Gravest Hits, and then followed it up with Songs the Lord Taught Us, produced by Alex Chilton. They were making a lot of noise. They had a huge following of The Underground Nature. And then at the end of that tour, which they toured the United States with the Buzzcocks and Gang of Four, Brian Gregory freaked out and left the band. He basically after the last night of their show, they had all smoked opium and passed out. He got up in the middle oh. of the night and drove east with all their stuff and totally fucked them over. What? And Basically, it came down to the fact that he wanted to be the new Brian Jones and he also was developing a really bad heroin problem and he was getting really paranoid and really like skittish about it. I'm amazed
2: it. he could get in the car and drive all the gear.
1: Yeah, me too. And he was also, I guess, bad Nick Knox, who was also having a heroin problem at that time, and so there was some of those battles, but then he left, and then this lady, Julian Hecklinger, joined for a little bit. She took on the name Grind Snatch, and she wanted to do it, but she couldn't do the life, and I don't think she could keep up with them, and so they started uh, talking to new guitarists and had become friends with the Gun Club, and Jeffrey Lee Pierce has this guitarist named uh, Brian Tristan, and they were fantastic. Hands of Brian Tristan and asked him to join the cramps. And Brian Tristan was like, I don't know if I can leave the gun club. I don't know if I can leave the gun club. So he talked to Jeffrey Pierce and Jeffrey Lee Pierce said, hell yeah, if I was asked to join the cramps, I would join the cramps, join the cramps. So he joined the cramps and became their guitarist for the next three years. As Kid Congo Powers. The next album, Smell of Female, in 1983. Man, so, they
2: had the product flowing,
1: whether it was new stuff, stuff with movies, stuff with uh, compilations, music flowing out constantly. And their first track, The Most Exalted Potentate of Love, was covered by Queens of the Stone Age.
2: What's clear is the more you read, the more you learn that the cramps were influential over a lot of people. Not maybe like, oh my God, we are the band we are because. The of them but they had influence over so many people who were fans i think that's what you look at is the list of people who were fans of that band and then you start to see oh, okay that makes sense
1: <laughs> it's true and you know they continued to record in 83 kid congo ended up leaving the band and so they ended up just using other uh, musicians to play on their live shows but poison ivy was doing the guitar and bass recording at that time because she knew the sound she wanted they knew the sound they wanted and at that time Ivy and Lux had pretty much kind of taken over a lot of the production too, because they didn't want to battle with the labels as much. They understood their sound better than the labels and everybody else did, so they knew what they were doing.
2: I think at one point, all the people in the business that they dealt with recognized that that like we don't understand what it is, but we know what the number is, and that's how they get a shot at being on Enigma Records, and yeah. it gets them on the you know on a sales boost there through mm-hmm. the uh, into the '80s and '90s. Mm-hmm. They hadn't made a record in four years, a new album, and they come out on Enigma. And then their influence on bands that are coming out in the early nineties starts to show as they continue to get on a big roll with big beat records and medicine. All the way through the nineties, it seemed they were busier than ever.
1: They opened the nineties with bikini girls with machine guns. Well I've been a drag racer. Creature from the Black Leather Lagoon, and they were really doing it. They continued their rock and roll vision and they continued pushing it forward. They changed a lot of members throughout, but the two constants the whole time. Mom and dad. Lux and Poison, (laughs) and their love was tied into the band. And even though people left and they changed members, they seemed to not hold a lot of grudges, too.
2: Well, Marcus, your love of the cramps is clear. And before I uh, hand it back to you for one final submission, on today's episode, I want to read something from one of the Cramps fans that posted on Spotify. Conjuring a fiendish witch's brew of primal rockabilly, grease stained 60s garage rock, vintage monster movies, perverse and glistening sex, and the detritus and effluvia of 50 years of American pop culture. The Cramps are a truly American creation, much in the manner of the Cadillac, the White Castle Hamburger, the Fender Stratocaster, and Jane Mansfield. That's it in a nutshell, man.
1: Wow. That is a perfect description of who the cramps are and you
2: thank know thank you that cramps fan for yeah, posting thank you. that up on spotify yeah, that's thank unbelievable
1: you. they continue to release albums their 1994 flame job is one of my favorite albums of theirs it's got a song that i jump around the house with my son too called nest of a cuckoo bird she's got a
3: look on her foot like. In the nest of the cuckoo bird In the nest of the cuckoo bird She's in a gang on the street that's so hard and
0: slippery You'll get a bang in her teeth with no charge for delivery
1: It's also got a song called Let's Get Fucked Up, which when they used to play that live, the crowd would go fucking bananas. We had so much of that one. Oh yeah. (laughs) They just continued to do it. Even their last album was a beauty, Fiends of Dope Island. It was done in 2003, and after that, they just kind of played. I mean, by that point, Lux was almost 60 years old, and the life of a road dog was hard at that point. Nothing wrong with the age, but being a road dog, you know, doing 14 shows in 20 days is hard when you're 60 years old. It's hard at any age, but
2: yeah, as you get older, it definitely is. And he didn't know that he had a lifelong condition that weakened his heart. and pushed too hard, I guess, and he mm-hmm. had the uh, aortic dissection, which is sudden. So you're not really thinking about, wow, today's the last day of my life, and then yeah. it is. I'm just glad they still had all those years of touring together and being together. They were a, a unique pair, and I always have to... Root for the unique people who get together and find each other in this crazy fucked
1: up world we live in. Seriously, the fact that that kind of a love story even happened is sort of magical in its own weird way because you don't really read or see love stories like that unless it's Hollywood, and then it's really fluffy. This is raw, and this is dirty, and this is awesome, and it's the way I think a real love story is, and it's a rock and roll love story, and that's who they are. That's who they were. That's who they will always be. And
2: If you're looking to understand his love of her, second side, last album, second song, she's got balls. No doubt. I think that says it all, right? <laughs> there,
1: man. Without a doubt. She was tough, and I have so much respect for Poison Ivy as a human being and as a guitar player. My son loves her tone. Her sounds are that fuzzy, noisy stuff that she does and the way she twangs and goes between notes and chords. He just likes her style because it makes him move, and he dances whenever he hears the cramps, so that's good stuff.
2: I'm glad to see that we did this and really got into it, and what a great way to find a a door into it by plugging into their love
1: story and in the day for loggers, It seems like the only way to present the cramps is presenting it as a love story because it all revolves around Poison Ivy and Lux Interior and they use their love energy and their love of rock and roll and I know that sounds so fucking weird to say but they use all of that energy. sounds
2: more punk rock than you think but
1: go ahead. But they use that energy to create this thing and this, this thing, thing that energized this thing from people. that
2: fucking place
1: yep It's like a
2: Billy Lagoon, whatever you want to call it.
1: If anybody out there understands rock and roll, it is the cramps. They might have one of the best understandings of rock and roll of any band out there. And that's not a knock on anybody else who's extremely knowledgeable and studied as they are, but their raw feel and their raw grasp of what rock and roll is and the sexy aspect of it is so important and that's how they lived. And it came through in all of their music
2: before we head on out of here and wrap things up we want to thank our sponsors boldfoot socks and crooked eye brewery and encourage all of you cramps fans to come out of your little nooks and crannies in the universe and come out and give us your stories about seeing them and maybe you met them at one point and you got to see that love that we've been talking about
1: absolutely and if you've not listened to the cramps before and you're totally new to them please listen to some of their music it will make you feel good it will make you move it will make you boogie
2: it may not be as easy to navigate as some on Spotify, and I'll just tell you to be persistent and start with songs that the Lord gave us, and you'll find your way forward.
1: It's a great place to start and check our posts because we may have a list of songs for you as well.
2: So hit us up at imbalancehistory at gmail.com or on the socials. You can hit us up on Twitter at Imbalance Histo.
1: On Instagram at the imbalance history of rock and roll. For
2: Pretty much the same on Facebook until the next time that we get together to crack the mic to talk about insanely weird stuff, including great rock
1: and roll like the cramps.
2: Happy Valentine's Day from the imbalanced history
1: of rock and roll. Coming
2: soon, R&B in the 70s, part two on the imbalanced
1: history of rock and roll it's really about the rest of the story that we didn't tell in part one and we'll be talking about artists that we didn't talk about in the first part including curtis mayfield in the impressions earth wind and fire isaac hayes
2: and we'll dig into artists that we barely touched on like the delphonics the spinners and the stylistics
1: more soul more funk more groove in RB in the 70s part two
2: releasing february 21st wherever you get your podcasts and on the pantheon podcast network
0: what would you do to achieve the american dream the big house the happy family the money would you put in the hours? Would you take a big swing? What's the problem? What's the problem? Would you lie? Would you cheat? Were they shot? Were they shot? Would you kill? Yes. I'm robbing I'm is right there. From Airship, the studio behind American Scandal, comes a new True Crime History Podcast. I'm Jeremy Schwartz You don't know the full story until now. Don't miss the debut season of American Criminal, the Menendez Brothers, beginning February 29th. Listen wherever you get your podcasts or to get early ad-free access to the entire season first, plus hundreds of other ad-free history podcast episodes, subscribe at intohistory.com.